So, Jay, here's what I don't get about Trevor Fitzroy. Wow, Miles, that is a really ominous lead-in. Well, okay, admittedly there's a lot I don't get about Trevor Fitzroy, but here's the big one. What's his endgame? He just seems kind of chaotic villainous. Is he working towards some big goal, or is he just sort of randomly evil? You mean besides the Upstart's murder contest? Well, yeah, but I mean, obviously he was a villain before, right? Technically after, since he's from the future, but yeah. And most X-Men villains have at least nominal higher goals. So what's Fitzroy's deal? Honestly, he's mostly just a big jerk with good hair. Although I guess there is the whole chronomancer thing. The chronomancer thing? Yeah. See, Fitzroy used his power to travel to this far future timeline where there was basically no technology, and then he used robots to set himself up as its dictator, a chronobot specifically, I believe. Huh. That wasn't really his long-term goal, though. It was more of a stepping stone on the way to... Taking over a better timeline? Becoming the abstract concept of time itself. What? I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 180 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And Jay, welcome to a world where you are not only the Pirate King of the Moon, but also apparently the comic book person of the year, at least according to comicbook.com. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed that I, I didn't get the Ozymandias trophy from Cat and Girl for this. I mean, you know, we, we can email them, but yeah, congratulations. And honestly, I, you, you totally deserve it. You've done some kick-ass work this year, uh, both uh, in the podcast, but also a lot of really important stuff outside the podcast. So well done. Thank you. It's been a really intense year. I'm also sort of really excited at the idea that a major comic book site's primary values are, are the ones that they listed in the Y because, like, yay, inclusivity and and being critical and positive at the same time. And I want the comics industry to be good, Miles. It has the seeds of glorious goodness within it. Uh, there's just a lot of bullshit in the way sometimes. But yeah, listeners, um, we'll link to that uh, in the As Mentioned, and you should check it out because Jay is awesome and you can hear more about why. I'm super uncomfortable now. Jay is also super uncomfortable. But anyway, we have some comics for you today. We surely have some comics for you today. So I want to start by talking about something other than the comics, because the comics we're talking about today are, are, look, let's just put this on the table. They're really bad. I mean, they're wonderfully bad, but... No, they're really, really bad. They're really (laughs) bad. But I came into recording fresh out of watching... Season 1, episode 11 of The Gifted, because we're a little bit ahead right now on recording, which is nice. Like, that doesn't happen. Right. Yeah, and The Gifted is amazing. At first, I talked about how I was really skeptical of it. And then I talked about how I was intrigued but not certain it was good. I am deeply invested in that show now. Dude, I am so excited to get caught up. Like, I've seen the first handful of episodes. I'm going to be diving into the rest soon. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be before or after I watch the Prisoner DVDs you got me for Christmas. Thank you again for those. You're welcome. Yeah, I catch little, like, snippets here and there about stuff in The Gifted and characters who show up, and everything I learn makes me more excited about watching more episodes. I'm glad to hear that my my super spoilery mid-episode texts are are serving their purpose. Listeners, I'm I'm not going to give you every detail that I've given Miles, because... Like I've said, they're pretty, pretty spoiler heavy. But let me put it this way. I'm pretty convinced that the writer's room of that show has about as high a concentration of X-Men errata and minutiae knowledge as this podcast. That is awesome. When are we going to get those people on the show? We should totally do that. I don't know. I really, really want to. I also really just want to party with them because I, I feel like we've got really similar priorities. But my point here other than that if you're a gifted writer and you're listening to this, we should totally go get drinks. Is And then you should come on the podcast because my ulterior motives aren't just that I want to hang out and talk X-Men shit with you, really. I know that's, that's what I want. That's really all I want. But um, but you should come on the podcast because it'll be fun. Anyway, I was what I was actually saying is that it, it does a fantastic job of being simultaneously really kind of celebratorily and comfortably familiar. There's there's a ton of really neat errata and minutiae that ends up on the show that feels like massive Easter eggs to catch, but that you don't really need to catch to enjoy it. And so there's a lot I'm familiar with, and there's a lot where I know exactly what they're referencing, but I still don't know where the show is going with it because they're using it in new and interesting enough ways to keep me on my toes, which is 
awesome and which is really rare with X-Men media because usually I can predict the entire plot based on which characters they're introducing. And here, I don't know. Like, it's really, really cool. And it's really interesting. And it's a really, it manages to stay within sort of the general Genre is not quite the word I'm looking for. Maybe the general overall of X-Men spinoff works while very much being its own thing. And I think playing the mutant metaphor in very timely and effective ways. I'm still not super into the protagonists, but I'm willing to accept that they're basically being, they're serving the same function as Piper on Orange is the New Black, which is being a Trojan horse for more interesting people's stories. I really like Thunderbird. I've only seen the first three episodes, but he's awesome. Oh, man, he's good. He broods like a proper proud star. He does. I also fucking love Polaris on it. Yeah, she's been rad. I gotta say, some of the ways you're describing this show is starting to remind me of a comparison I wasn't thinking I'd ever be able to make, which is of Legion, which is not just one of my favorite X-Men shows, but one of my favorite shows ever, period. So, intriguing. But this is a podcast largely about comic books, so let's talk about some of them. So we're going to be covering Uncanny X-Men number 281 to 283 today. These are the first issues after the Blue Gold team split. They're the first issues after the Mirror Island saga. They're they're not great, but what they are is some of the first comics I ever bought with my own money. The one with uh, number 282, the one with Bishop and Malcolm and Randall on the cover, I remember being so excited about that, even though they only show up for the last page. So this is an important shit for me. I'm so sad for you. I mean, it worked out for me when I was a kid. Of course, I used to watch Thundercats when I was little, and that's nigh unwatchable as an adult, so eh, what can you do? But... Yeah, I've, I've only seen that as an adult. I watched that with you and your roommate our freshman year of college, and it was, it was, not, it was not a good show. Does not hold up. And these issues kind of don't, and they kind of do, but one thing that does hold up is the main character introduced here, and that is Lucas motherfucking Bishop. Yeah, Bishop is great. Bishop is what I was really excited about going in. Now, we're only going to see the faintest corner of Bishop. We're we're just going to barely get introduced here. But basically, he's the redeeming characteristic of of these three issues. They're they're not they're not okay. Well, he's he's a great character in general, and I mean, a lot of that is the concept. Like we're used to especially in the late 80s and early 90s seeing these badass characters who have their claws or their exploding playing cards or their ninja skills or whatever, and they're all very chaotic fuck authority. And I like that Bishop is allowed to be a badass in an orderly way. Like, he's the one that takes it too far in the other direction and is still just as much of a badass. And that's refreshing to see. Bishop, over about 20 years, is literally going to go from lawful good to lawful evil. And it's going to be interesting. It's going to be really cool, actually, in a fairly organic evolution. But for now, he's basically just lawful badass. Yes, he is. Also, what a great character design. He's got this tattoo over his eye of the letter M, which is, I guess, what they do to uh, mutants in that future. It's sort of a kind of like a pink triangle or yellow star, honestly. But it's a really cool visual image, and it really does showcase just how much that future kind of sucks, or at least sucked up until recently. One thing that's interesting to me is the origin of Bishop. Not just the origin in the comics, but the origin in the uh, writers of the comics world. He was actually created by Will Spertaccio specifically for the gold team since they were comparatively underpowered as opposed to the blue team and also had one fewer member. Interestingly, he was originally supposed to be Filipino. Um, Portacio was really big on getting more Filipino representation in comics, which is rad. Mm -hmm. But Marvel actually said that Bishop should specifically be black because X-Men had a big following among black readers at the time, and a lot of them had wondered why there wasn't a male black X-Men, which, you know, totally legit, as much as it would have also been cool to see a male Filipino X-Men. Yeah, I feel like this is a place where they could have just gone for the Road to El Dorado option and just been like, yeah, both is Mm -hmm, good. mm -hmm. An an issue we've seen consistently is trouble recognizing even the possibility for intersectional representation, which is frustrating. I I am glad that Portacio created Bishop, though, because he is an artist I'm having a whole lot of trouble liking, and this definitely warms me significantly more to him. Right, but you know who fucking doesn't? The other major character introduced in this arc... Trevor Fitzroy. Trevor fucking Fitzroy. So Trevor is like a future evil dude. We'll get to more about him later. But I just hate him. He's like Celine, but he's even more boring and he's even more of a pointless, pointless sadist. He does have one really good thing going for him, and that is his fucking sweet hair. That may be true, but the rad haircut is undone by the fact that his goatee disappears and reappears at random, depending on how, I don't know, I guess the anchor is doing things. I'm just saying, if you have a beard, that beard is a responsibility. You have to treat it with maturity and reverence. 
Okay, first of all, I'm not sure if the words maturity and reverence can ever be applied to a goatee. (laughs) Second, sorry guys with goatees. Okay, those of you whose, whose hair naturally grows into goatees, you're good as far as I'm concerned. If you shave your hair into a goatee, that is a choice that I respect because your body is yours. And I respect your personal physical autonomy, but I'm still kind of side-eyeing you. (laughs) I did do a goatee myself for many years, but not in a long time. Yeah, but in your 20s. Okay, valid. But it's not just... Miles, a deliberate goatee is the hairstyle of a callow youth who's really into White Wolf. (laughs) (laughs) I was all of those things, it's true. Exactly. But also, I have a theory about Fitzroy's goatee. Mm -hmm. So, we know he's a time traveler. And we know his soul has popped sort of in and out of existence. He's got more complicated backstory, which is eventually going to be revealed in Peter David's second X Factor series in relation to Layla Miller, Ruby Summers, who's an alternate timeline future character, and a lot of other stuff. But basically what we're going to learn is that he was good for a while. My theory is that the goatee is basically an illustration of his still conflicted nature. Ah, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah. Well, nonetheless, while you do make a compelling argument there, I think the evidence is firmly stacked against Trevor Fitzroy, so I will say, in conclusion, fuck you, Trevor. Fuck you right in your stupid face. So, this is Uncanny X-Men. This is the continuing X-Men title, as opposed to the the suddenly relaunched X-Men number one. The nominally continuing X-Men title, because, man, I don't know what the hell this is coming out of. So uh, let's let's maybe look at the foundational continuity because we're going to be pulling from a lot today. All right. Well, in that case, previously on X-Men. The Lords Imperial of the Wealthy Mutant Secret Society, the Hellfire Club, have had a bad decade or so. The self-serving and shirt-hating Black King, Sebastian Shaw, was murdered by his dapper lesbian son, Shinobi. Jay, maybe you should explain this. Okay, in his first appearance, Shinobi Shaw's personal style is something that I can only describe as dapper lesbian. I will put photos in the visual companion. You will see what I am talking about. But it is inarguable, and it is fucking awesome. I can't deny it, and now I can't unsee it. Yes! Uh, If you've been listening to the show regularly, you'll notice that we haven't actually talked about that scene, even though it already happened. We're going to remedy that this episode. We were saving it. I had a notes file and everything. Meanwhile, Tessa... Sage, Sebastian Shaw's personal aide, is biding her time waiting to become a main character of Extreme X-Men in 20 or so years. She'll be popping up in the background between now and then, but is basically off the main table. The White King, a rank shared by Magneto and Storm, stopped being so relevant to the Hellfire Club when both Eric and Aurora got distracted and forgot all about it. Harry Leland, the Black Bishop, finally finished his rad Halloween costume, but was promptly killed by the mutant-hunting future robot Nimrod, as was the werewolfy Black Rook, Friedrich von Rohan. The white bishop, Donald Pierce, was a racist cyborg who got kicked out and started hanging out with the also-cyborg, also-racist Reavers in Australia. Along with Lady Deathstrike. Jason Wingard, mastermind, got his mind erased by the Phoenix. Twice. And he deserved it both times. Before he even got a chance to get a chess-related title. The Black Queen, Celine, is fine for now aside from being kind of boring and a continuity spiral. Emma Frost, the White Queen, is doing great. She still runs the Massachusetts Academy where she trains her Hellions, the fuchsia-clad anti-new mutants. Nothing bad will ever happen to her or them. You asshole. <laughs> right. Now, a number of young mutants, the aforementioned Shinobi Shaw, Matsuo Tsuriyaba of the ninja clan The Hand, the incestuous Nazi jerk siblings called Fenris, and ponytail and betrayal aficionado Fabian Cortez have been using the word upstart a whole lot. That's gonna be a whole thing. The upstarts are never going to make sense. Putting that out there right now, keep it in the back of your mind as we discuss them. These threads are never actually going to come together. As for the X-Men, the ostensible topic of this podcast, well, as you know, they've split into two teams. The blue team, Cyclops, Wolverine, Psylocke, Beast, Gambit, and Rogue, are hanging out in Adjectiveless X-Men, technically volume two. And Uncanny X-Men follows the gold team, that being Storm, Jean Grey, Colossus, Archangel, and Iceman. And soon, Bishop. Now, in the future of the X-Universe, or at least a future, everything is going to go to hell. Amid growing anti-mutant sentiment, sentinel robots will take over, putting mutants into concentration camps, and oppressing the hell out of humans while they're at it. As for how that Days of Future Past timeline and timelines related to it are relevant, you will definitely see. Now, there are a number of story threads in this arc that got planted much earlier. These are things we might have mentioned offhand in previous episodes, but we're going to collect them all again here just so that you know what's been building up to this, both how much there is and also how little and how 
very carefully you'd have to be to actually catch these things as they were happening. The first of those comes from Uncanny X-Men number 268, which you may remember as the Wolverine Captain America Black Widow issue, where Captain America hit on Wolverine real hard and Black Widow was maybe secretly a princess. In the present day, in sort of the background of that issue, um, Matsuo Tsuriaba of The Hand met up with the Fenris twins. Now, more explicitly relevantly was a scene from X-Factor number 87, which we saved for this issue. In this scene, Sebastian Shaw was furious, and also in Switzerland. His company had apparently been bought out by his previously unmentioned son, Shinobi Shaw. When I talk about dapper lesbian Shinobi Shaw, this is the issue I am talking about, where Shinobi Shaw's fashion sense is amazing. Like, I talked, we, we've talked about, like, 80s Rachel Summers and her amazing ability to do, like, dressed-down butch. This is like if Rachel Summers had been ultra posh. It's that general tone. Um, the aesthetic is so good. I'm really into it. Unfortunately, as far as I can tell, he's naked for the rest of his life after this. But for this brief moment, savor that fashion because it is really spot on. Now, I was always confused by Shinobi Shaw because Matsuo Tsuriyaba, the guy from The Hand that we also mentioned, he was partially responsible for Psylocke's transformation, depending on which writer you ask. He looks a hell of a lot like Shinobi. They're both young men, very fit, with presumably at least some Asian background, um, I'm assuming more for Matsuo, in some respect, and they both show up at the same time and do a lot of the same stuff. That was very confusing and honestly, still kind of is. Here's how you can tell them apart. I have a really bad mnemonic. Okay. Shinobi Shaw's coat has a popped shawl collar. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, listeners, remember that. It will come in handy possibly once in your life. Yeah, he, he pretty much, never, again, he pretty much is never going to wear clothes again. But for that one issue, you're sad. Now, in this scene, when Shinobi shows up to laugh at his dad, Sebastian attacks the hell out of his son. I mean, how, how dare this kid take away what Shaw spent his whole life building, both as a businessman and as a force of power? He says that Shinobi is a presumptuous, arrogant upstart. And that's the first time we hear the word upstart, which will ultimately become the name of the, I don't know about team, but uh, fellowship, organization, that all these jerk kids are going to join. Fellowship seems a little optimistic, considering how often they try to kill each other. Well, you know, there is that. But Shinobi has these newly manifested density-controlling mutant powers, and he just stops Sebastian's heart by phasing his hand into Sebastian's chest, and then blows up the building, leaving a naked, there we go, an unharmed Shinobi, who tells his dad that he's fired, and that's the story of Shinobi Shaw and the death of Sebastian. Don't worry, Sebastian will be back. Nobody stays dead in comics. It's also the story of how Shinobi Shaw stopped wearing clothes. Right, he just never put on a full outfit again, I guess. So, all of that background and discussion present, let's dive into Uncanny X-Men number 281, Fresh Upstart. This feels like a punishment for something. Is it a punishment, Shay? Or an opportunity? It's a punishment. Well, this punishment was brought to us by Jim Lee and Wills Portacio, who wrote the plot... Uh, Portacio, who did the pencils, and John Byrne, who did the script. That name, of course, may be very familiar to you as the artist on one of the best runs of the Uncanny X-Men for many, many years before. If you're wondering if his dialogue skills live up to his art abilities, the answer is a firm and resounding no. I mean, I kind of like the run he wrote on Alpha Flight, but it's also been a while since I read it. I... So what I mostly associate his writing with is X-Men The Hidden Years, which is just resoundingly awful. Eh, well, fair enough. But in this uh, multi-man creation, we open with the Reavers, you know, the cyborg racist jerks that, are, that the X-Men stole their Outback base from. In fact, they're hanging out in that base again, since the X-Men abandoned it by going through a big portal a long time ago. They're complaining about how there aren't any non-cyborg women around and how the X-Men suck. One, didn't they get killed in Scotland? Two... Aren't there two cyborg women around? So one of them did get killed in Scotland. That was, I believe, Skullbuster. And there are Scylla Markham, the new Skullbuster, and Lady Deathstrike around, but apparently they intimidate the Reavers, who are weak-willed, foolish fuckboys. They are. They are such fuckboys. They are cybernetic fuckboys. That is a good description of the Reavers. They, they cannot handle women with basically the same power set as they have. And it's stupid, and I don't like them. But it's okay, because they're, they're definitely all about to die right now. They are, because these Sentinels show up. Now, these are a little different. They're more futuristic-looking than usual, and they're also smaller, and they kill the living crap out of the Reavers. And like you said, eh, that's fine. Fuck them. Meanwhile, in his absurdly fancy penthouse, Shinobi Shaw 
is having what may be a meeting and maybe an interrupted orgy. This is going to be a common point of confusion in Shinobi Shaw's appearances, but what we do know is that he is currently hanging out with a dude named Fitzroy with a rad aqua mohawk and an appearing and disappearing goatee, and at the moment, a pink coat. And I really love this scene. So Wills Portacio um, definitely has his artistic tics, but he draws pretty muscular people really entertainingly. And there are a lot of them here. Shinobi is attended by maybe a couple dozen really attractive, uh, extremely scantily clad women and men of uh, all racial backgrounds by the look of it. I mean, they're all really thin and fit, but yeah, it's Shinobi, he's shallow. But I like that. He's an equal opportunity sex fiend. So on one hand, that is a mixed bag for me but it, because it goes with a long trend of villainy being queer-coded, which is, again, a mixed issue. But more pertinently, Shinobi's general, like, ambiance in his home reminds me so intensely of Key and Peele's sexy vampire sketch. Oh, right. Okay, so listeners, I had not seen this before, and Jay sent me a link, like, right before we recorded, and it's great. You should check it out. But I'm not wrong, though. Like, it's, this, is, this is exactly the kind of place that you would get if you imagined, like, a teenager who only had a sort of scanty idea of what sexy meant and possibly also of what sex was tried to put together a sexy penthouse suite. Like, this is a kid who has watched some R-rated movies but doesn't quite get the things that go beyond the trappings. I feel like he's probably watched a lot of scrambled porn at 2 a.m. on his parents' television. Oh, shit, you're right. I love this. Yes, yes. So, yeah, he's, and he definitely talks about having, having moves, despite the fact that he cannot actually name any of those moves. He's really hoping that if he hangs out with these, these sexy people enough and, like, drops vague sort of hints, they will eventually independently have a conversation that will enlighten him as to the nature and location of the clitoris. That's, like, his entire goal in this entire arc. That's the reason he's starting the upstart, so he can figure out what sex is. I love everything about this. But yeah, no, so he has shit like a circular bed with satin sheets and all of the really impractical and not actually that sexy stuff that's very much sexy props. Right? Oh, it's perfect. But anyway, the reason for his meeting is that he is talking to this new guy, Fitzroy, about who's going to be king of the upstarts. Now, Shinobi is already the head of the Hellfire Club because he killed his dad, and apparently their bylaws are pretty bizarre. But uh, the upstarts... Officers move up by assassination, Miles. Did you learn nothing from Mirror Mirror? Okay, that's a very good point, if we use that logic. But apparently the way this works, the way we're going to determine who runs the upstarts is who kills the most high-value targets. Essentially, badass heroes, villains, whatever. So Shinobi Shaw got his dad, that's why he's ahead. But now this new guy, Fitzroy, got the Reavers with his own futuristic Sentinels. That said, the actual rules for the game, the point values of these targets, and also the potential prize keep changing. This is all being run by, by a shadowy and mysterious figure called the Game Master, whose nature will never actually be entirely discussed. So, you know, make up your own headcanons here, kids. They're probably going to make about as much sense as what ends up in the comics. Right, we'll get lots of information about the Games Master, the prizes, the rules, all that. It's just that all those explanations are going to contradict each other. Although there is a brief period around 1993 where it's just straight up all of them, like, lean down really intently around a Hungry Hungry Hippos board. Jay, as you were saying that, I immediately pictured the same thing before you even said Hungry Hungry Hippos. I think we've known each other for a very long time. Just, if it's not clear, I am lying now, but feel free to absorb this into your own personal sense of the upstarts and what they mean. I'm just happy that we had the same incorrect hypothetical in our heads. Now- No, no, Hungry Hungry Hippos is objectively the funniest board game to randomly throw into a serious scenario. Agreed. I wonder if they're ever going to do one of those, like, big-budget Hollywood movie versions of it. It'll probably be really, really dark and, like, violent. Oh, man. Hateful, hateful hippos. They'll be, like, evil, genetically engineered, maybe cyborg hippos from the future, and a very serious, slightly grizzled white man with short brown hair will have to will, will be the last hope of humanity despite being kind of a failure and some really badass woman will like teach him some skills after which he will face down those hippos and save our children. 
I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't watch it, but meanwhile, the X-Men, specifically the Gold Team, are heading to a fancy party at the Hellfire Club, despite the fact that many members of the Hellfire Club, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, are not around slash are dead. They are all dressed in their best 90s party gear as drawn by Wills Portacio, which is pretty great. Um, and Angel, for the occasion, has sprouted hair. Yeah, this is the first time we've seen Angel without his hood on since he turned into Archangel. Now, we have seen evidence that he's just wearing a costume and it's not body paint back in the Judgment War when the X-Men were in space, but apparently his head of luscious curly blonde locks is fully intact. I don't know how to feel about that. If I were Warren Kenneth Worthington III, I would just leave the costume on. It is not a good look. Warren Kenneth Worthington III, you put that hood right back on. Now, Jean Grey is uncomfortable being in the Hellfire Club. I mean, remember, she absorbed Phoenix's memories and Madeline Pryor's memories, and she remembers what Mastermind did to her back the last time she was here when she was Phoenix. Even without that, there are a lot of reasons to be uncomfortable being in the Hellfire Club. Now, things elsewhere in the club aren't much better because Emma Frost, the White Queen, suddenly smashes her door open using a 90s-ish assassin cyborg lady who uh, she bludgeons out into the open. The cyborg was apparently trying to kill her for reasons that we assume are related to the upstarts but are never fully 100% clear. So Emma decides that she is going to telepathically interrogate this assassin. The X-Men have all clustered around, as have the Hellions. They have been having awkward little standoffs between themselves in ways that I really usually associate with the New Mutants. The Hellions, for those of you previously unfamiliar with them, were Emma Frost's students at the Massachusetts Academy, and they were set up as basically the counterparts and occasionally friends and allies, occasionally direct rivals of the New Mutants. So seeing them here facing off with X-Men and, and being catty with them in a formal wear context is really odd. It feels off. It feels like the, the Hellions skipped a generation in kind of sad ways. What also feels odd and off is some of the dialogue here. We mentioned that Burn scripting is a little weird, and there's a storyline in this scene that, for me, kind of highlights that. I said enough, Frost. I would not deny you the right to defend yourself, but I draw the line at torture, especially when it threatens Jean Grey. Because, you know, Jean's getting hit with psychic feedback, but Jay, should I start using your last name all the time whenever I talk about you like Storm does with Jean here? No, it wouldn't scan as well. And also, you're not nearly as aggressively queer-coded as Storm, so you don't get the added subtext bonus. Here, though, so my, my personal perspective on this is that all of her teammates are just leaning really passive-aggressively into Jean's lack of codenames. Like, fine, you don't want a codename? We'll just call you by your full name. Jean Gray. Jean, too good for a codename. Gray. Oh, man. I, I like this plan. That's good canon. So the Hellions attack Storm because she's getting all up in Emma's grill, and there's a big dumb fight. And I gotta say, in the 90s, big dumb fights happen way more often. I mean, you'd see that in the 70s and the 80s all the time, certainly. There's a misunderstanding in heroic teams fight. But here they do it just at the drop of a hat. It kind of reminds me of Wolverine going out of character and slashing Magneto really, really badly in X-Men Volume 2, number one. Like, the 90s are just more violent. There's just more violence in the air, or maybe the water. The violence is amplified by the fact that I get the impression that Byrne and Portacio don't have a real clear sense of who the Hellions are, what their powers are, or which one is which. There is that. Now, we do have a couple of new Hellions here, the wonderfully named Beef and Bevatron. They actually first showed up in a new Warriors issue, I believe. I haven't actually read it, but the internet assures me that it's true. Beef and Bevatron. Yep. Well, some choices were definitely made there. Mm-hmm. And the Hellions are, as drawn by Wills Portacio, all hugely muscular. Before, they were kind of scrawny teenagers, although it certainly varied. Like, but here, Bevatron's butt is astonishing. Okay, so we're talking less damn than wow, that butt might be like inde independently prehensile and could throw buildings. Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure he has to have a second brain in his butt, kind of like dinosaurs did in their tails. Well, I'm not sure if that was debunked with the dinosaurs, but it's definitely true with Bevatron. That got weird fast. <laughs> right? Now, Empath is shown being part of this fight, and in fact, he uses his powers to defuse an argument at one point, but he's actually supposed to still be in Nova Roma with Magma, and later on, someone tells him about what happened in this issue, and he's surprised, so, eh, whatever. In Empath's dubious defense, I was also surprised by the events of this story. Right? So Jean Grey telepathically blasts everyone super hard, and I like here how Portacio's faces always make everybody look really angry or like they're in extreme pain. There's no half measures here. And the fight ends. I have a lot of trouble with that, and that's actually one of the aspects of Portacio's art that I have the most trouble with, aside from the thing that I'm not going to mention anymore after finally resolving it in the Corbeau Awards. 
uh, in episode 178. But like everyone looks like they're yelling all the time. And it's like the rage equivalent of the sexy problem. I've talked about this before, that basically when your default is to draw women as super sexy all the time, then when you actually want a scene to have sexual dynamics and chemistry, you have no way to amp it up. This is what Portacio does with yelling. Like, I can't tell when the drama is supposed to be raised because no one in this book looks like they have an inside voice. And it's a non-ultimate, non-Ms. Marvel comic, so everybody's talking in all caps all the time anyway. And, and Cable's not in it, so you, you can't just assume that, you know, it's just him. Well, Emma Frost does reveal why she brought the X-Men here, not just have a big pointless fight. It's that the Hellfire Club has been attacked, and she wants an alliance because whoever's going after the Hellfire Club will probably go after the X-Men next. She clearly knows more than she's telling them. It's implied that maybe she's talking about Shinobi Shaw taking out Sebastian, but before the X-Men can really grill her for details, Fitzroy shows up in armor that, um... Man, man, is that some armor. He shows he shows up in this crystalline armor that is basically like a clear version of the really bad ruby quartz armor that Cameron Hodge had back in X-Factor. And I briefly considered doing some kind of who wore it better feature here, but the answer is no one. No one wore it better. I mean, I guess there was Patrick Stewart's armor back in the Dune movie, but that doesn't really make much of an argument either. But indeed, Fitzroy shows up, and one of the first things that he does is to murder Jetstream and Beef. Now, Beef I don't really care much about because, you know, he was just from some New Warriors issue that I should probably get around to reading, and maybe he's awesome, but still. But Jetstream, I liked him. He was cool. He was one of my favorite Hellions. Yeah, he was an okay guy. He was pointedly an okay guy. You know who's not an okay guy, though? Donald Pierce. Did you forget about him? I hope you enjoyed those few moments because he's back right now. He is running around the outback being chased by sentinels. Lady Lady Deathstrike and, and Scylla Markham, the, the new skull, Skullbuster, Skullcrusher, Skull something. She's one of the readers. She is Skullbuster 2. Skullbuster 2. God, why do we bother? I often ask myself that, and yet here we are 180 episodes later. So, Scylla Markham, that, that is uh, Skullbuster 2 and Lady Deathstrike, make a token effort at stopping this, the sentinels. They're not really able to do more than slow them down a little bit. They keep coming after Donald Pierce, who finally attempts to compel Gateway to teleport him out of there, specifically to the one responsible for the attack. How Gateway is expected to know this, I do not know, but he does open a portal. Maybe Gateway's a TARDIS. He can just sort of figure out where Donald Pierce is supposed to be. But who is not supposed to be where Donald Pierce is going is the three sentinels that go through the portal after Pierce. And so, sure enough, in the middle of the fight in the Hellfire Club, it was already pretty chaotic, but now we have Donald Pierce and three futuristic sentinels joining in. They kill him. They kill Pierce real hard. But before that happens, I kind of want to focus on some of the uh, dialogue here. As Roulette, one of the worst Hellions, says, Who is this guy? Where's he getting all that power? And Iceman replies, From that funky outfit, I'd bet, babe. Looks like the mix just got altered on this little clam bake. Iceman, what are you talking about? He, he speaks in what I can only describe as pseudo-hippoglossolalia. Also interesting is, uh, I, I feel like Storm gets many of the strangest lines here, but Storm referencing something truly shoehorned in. Now, John Byrne wrote a big long run on Fantastic Four, and so Storm says as she sees Fitzroy's powers... Super strength! Invisibility! This being possesses the powers of the Super Skrull, the alien enemy of the Fantastic Four. That's very expository of her. It really is, but no more exposition because here, like we said, Pierce and the Sentinels show up. The Sentinels kill Pierce and then seemingly kill the White Queen. It's okay, she'll get better. They also kill Taro, which makes me sad because she's my very favorite Hellion. She gets blasted through one of her own Taro projections. It was sad. We're just getting, like, dead Hellions left and right. And also a dead Jean Grey. They blow up Jean Grey. She also gets better. The Hellions don't get better. My favorite one was Cat's Eye. I really liked her. Cat's Eye's good. So in the aftermath of all of this, outside, bystanders are talking about how they're relieved that only mutants were killed. And Senator Kelly, who I guess was in the Hellfire Club, shows up to say that the X-Men will pay for attacking this private club. Senator Kelly specifically runs out, like, buttoning his shirt back up to say this, which seems like a bad PR move to me. But, you know, you do you, Senator Kelly. Or, you know, you do your Hellfire Club friends. Whatever. Consent. Adults. 
Shinobi Shaw has got, like, a lot of people. But the X-Men say that they've paid the ultimate price. Jean Grey is dead. In fact, Colossus specifies because, again, the most expository X-Men. Speak to us not of payment, Senator Kelly. Tonight the X-Men have paid in the most precious coin of all. Doubloons. Right. Well, also, Fitzroy and the Sentinels are just gone. That was never really mentioned, but let's dive right into the next issue, number 282, Payback. So, Uncanny X-Men 282 has one of the most frustrating bait-and-switch covers ever. Namely, Bishop. Bishop is on the cover, but he does not show up until the last damn page. I know, right? And honestly, the cover was one of the main reasons I picked up this issue. I just have this wonderful love for Bishop and Malcolm and Randall, his two other future cop buddies. We'll get to that. But we don't open with them. In fact, we don't get to them for a while. We open with Professor Xavier and Forge playing chess. And in this scene, Forge very specifically looks like Nightcrawler pretending to be Errol Flynn, which is kind of confusing, as is the fact that he's wearing big fucking pauldrons over an otherwise real normal sweater. But yeah, they're having a conversation as they play chess, talking about how Professor X saying it's a good thing they're just playing chess and not actually having a war, which, I mean, okay. But I do like this scene. I like the idea of Forge and Xavier, even though in the comics they haven't really seemed to have met more than very, very briefly. I like the idea of them as friends. I mean, it fits with the X-Men grand design retcon that Ed Pisker came up with that Forge built all the X-Men stuff early on about their association. And that's cool. Like, I'm totally all right with... Uh, whether it's just a retcon or quick character development, them being buds. Professor Xavier needs peers. He's kind of an asshole to him, though. Like, the context about being, it's a good thing they're just playing chess, is that Ford, he beats Forge, and Forge is like, we should play again. And Professor Xavier is like, it's a good thing it's a game where you can say that, not an actual war where you'd be dead, huh? It's kind of a weird exchange, but nonetheless, I like the dynamic, and I'm just going to not look too closely at the words. I mean, it's a 90s comic. That's kind of how you read them. Well, there's not time to, because the X-Team is back from the Hellfire Club, and Storm has suddenly developed telekinesis and is, is able to, to mentally chuck the decapitated sentinel head over to Forge, which was unexpected. Okay, brief aside. So, listeners, Jay and I used to be in a Warhammer fantasy role-playing game. If you're not familiar with the world of Warhammer, it's very dark and gross. It's a little bit more like the Dark Ages would have been, except with, like, chaos magic. Ooh. Ooh, I can sum it up with one kind of terrific riddle. What has six arms, seven legs, five eyes, and the plague? A Warhammer party. Yup. But we had one member who was gradually losing her mind due to, you know, chaos -y stuff, and another who was a chaos hunter who at one point found a skull. It was a, a clue that was part of, like, a puzzle. And when she was done with it, just chucked the skull in the direction of the woman slowly losing her mind. Which caused said woman to manipulate reality with her own madness and have a bunch of skeletons come out of the ground and attack us. But, like, who does that? Who just throws a skull at a person? Well, apparently, in addition to old skull chucker from Warhammer, also Storm. It's a robot head. That's different. That game was really fun. I played a halfling, and I got a ton of extra experience points for writing songs. I wrote one for Pi Week. It's great. It's the only, it's the only halfling ho holiday in the Warhammer universe. It's pretty great. But here, Storm describes what happened last issue, and she doesn't exactly because she talks about how Fitzroy stole Emma Frost's body and fled, and we never saw that, but the caption helpfully explains. Not quite what you saw last issue, but take our word for it. It's what happened. Bob. Now, Professor Xavier decides that Jean can't be dead because she's a powerful telepath and they have a bond. He would have felt her die. Her mind, however, is not in her body. And what we're going to find out shortly happened is that she body snatched Emma Frost. And here is an amazing thing. This is something that almost never gets brought back up, despite the fact that they have a long and fairly explicit rivalry that involves a lot of dredging of the past. The fact that Jean Grey straight up body snatched Emma. I know, right? Just sort of gets lost by the wayside. Now, back in Shinobi Shaw's penthouse, Fitzroy himself shows up to wake up Shaw with the head of Donald Pierce, which he then throws at him. And also he has a, an apparently comatose white queen, but is this just a thing in late 1991? Like, did you just enter conversations by throwing heads at people? I mean, I was, what, nine years old, so maybe I wouldn't have been aware of adult culture as much, but I don't remember this, and you'd think I would have noticed. I feel like it's very sort of fitting with the drama level of this book, but I want to go back a little bit to that editor's note we talked about, because that's something that you're going to see a lot of in this era, sort of a frantic scramble to say, no, no, this really does make sense. 
when it actually doesn't. This is one of those points where our job gets kind of complicated and frustrating because a lot of the time what we explain is how the pieces of continuity that seem disparate and convoluted at the time come together and fit with later material. And here we're coming into an era where, and this arc really highlights the fact, things often don't actually make sense at all. And so what we're explaining is basically the inexplicable. This doesn't make sense. And so what, what we're having to do is look more at the creative directions of the book and look more at sort of that chaos and what it said about the comics industry, what it said about the tone of the book and how it might have impacted readers at the time. And I think that's worth remarking on in the middle of this, you know, fairly characteristically nonsense story arc. For serious, I mean, we got so spoiled during the long Claremont and Simonson era where almost everything connected. Like, you'd occasionally have a plot thread that got dropped, but nothing like this. Now, of course, Fitzroy and, P and Shinobi Shaw are still having their rivalry about who's going to be king, and Fitzroy says he just took out Jean Grey, he just took out the White Queen, he just took out Pierce. Uh, the Reavers were, of course, already dead, so he can be king now. And to cement this, he cuts off Shinobi Shaw's finger that has the ring of leadership. I don't think he does that on panel. He's Because he specifically, he threatens him with a sentinel, and then he pulls a knife, which always struck me as absolutely hilarious, because he's got a sentinel. Well, right, but you know, the sentinels are big. They have big fingers. They couldn't pull out one finger. They'd just rip off Shinobi Shaw's entire hand if they tried. That is completely contradicted by canon established in the very next issue, Miles. Eh, let's not worry too much about it. But back at the X-Men headquarters, the X-Men used their technology to technology their way into the Sentinel's head, where they learned that the Upstart's headquarters is a floating fortress disguised as an iceberg, or specifically Fitzroy's headquarters. And the X-Men, the gold team, immediately goes, goes to find out what's up and to check this out. Professor X declares that he's going to be coming along because he can hone in on Gene's psychic signature, and Forge declares that he's coming along because, I don't know, maybe he's bored or something. Well, speaking of bored characters, Fitzroy isn't for long because a time portal opens up in his base and some people who fuse together trying to go through it fall through. We find out here from Fitzroy and his little friend Bantam that Fitzroy's powers are kind of weird. Basically, he sucks the life energy out of people, and that enables him to open portals through time. But the portals only go one way, and if you try to go through them the other way, you get fused together or torn apart or something like that. I have mixed feelings here. I mean, we are in a, uh, an era where there have been so many characters that you can't just say flight or magnetism because people already have that, but this is very specific. I don't know. On the balance, I think I kind of like it. It gets more specific, too. He specifically has to fuel these portals by absorbing people's life energy. There is a complicated system at work here. Bantam is worth touching on because he's a character who's going to show up again and again with Fitzroy. He's going to be with him, actually, through the Chronomaster nonsense um, until he's he's finally going to betray, betray him. And I believe Fitzroy either kills him or imprisons him in another, in another dimension. Uh, he, is, he is a weird little dude who's got nebulous powers, but they have something to do with chronal sensitivity or manipulation, and having him around allows Fitzroy to aim his portals more precisely. Now, Fitzroy, for his part, has all, the, all of the Hellions in a weird, like, I don't know, audience configuration? They're cuffed down in the big cover-your-hands-up-to-your-elbows handcuffs of, of the early 90s, in, in kind of a semicircle around Fitzroy, who looks like he's about to read them in a story or something. He's not. But what he does instead of reading them a story is, is to suck out all of Taro's life energy. So that's the thing. That's the end of that. God damn it. I mentioned she was my favorite Hellion, and she just died for the second time in as many issues. I mean, usually the lack of continuity consistency is just annoying, but here it really feels like adding insult to Taro murdering injury. Now, with that life energy, and this, this really kind of only makes it worse, honestly, Fitzroy opens a portal to get some of his weirdo friends from the future. Three guys who absolutely don't matter, one of whom ditches him immediately, and the other two of whom will be killed within, like, the next ten pages. It's such a waste. Poor Taro. We hardly knew you. Okay, so we have Burke, who's just sort of a red dude. Uh, Kroger, who I believe is a member of KISS. And Styles, who is definitely a member of Manowar. And I am pleased to report that all three of them have righteous mullets. Yeah, so I know I've talked about how Age of Apocalypse is the glam future, but dang, Earth 1191 is some stiff competition. And uh, first among its charms are that every single one of its denizens is, is the owner of a righteous mullet. Or mullet equivalent. They're not all exactly mullets, but they're all as amazing. Now, elsewhere in the base, 
Jean's mind and Emma's body wakes up, and she has access to Jean Grey's powers to everyone's surprise, including mine, because I didn't think that was how mutant powers works, but whatever. Of interest, this is actually the second Emma Frost body swap we've seen, and it's not going to be the last. The ones I can think of off the top of my head were Storm back in the Uncanny X-Men around 150 era, now this right here, and later on in uh, the early 300s in Uncanny X-Men, she's going to body swap with Iceman. Well, she's going to specifically steal Iceman's body. I don't know. Uh, these Well, these aren't really body swaps, because I don't think Emma Frost's consciousness is in Jean's body. And I don't know if, if if she actually swaps places with Iceman or just basically takes over the steering wheel for a while. The only the only true swap of, of this lot, I think, is the Emma Frost storm swap. Yeah, that's a good point, if one is to be pedantic about it, which, of course, is part of our job. The note you make about the powers is really interesting, though, because these powers are nominally genetic. They are theoretically tied not only to the X-Men's individual psyches, but to their individual and specific bodies. And we're going to see that fairly consistently throughout the comic. Now, I'm thinking of, of contexts where characters have possessed one another, but also specifically the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, where Gene and Scott's consciousnesses get pulled into the future, but where they very specifically do not have access to the same power sets they would have had with their original bodies. Right? Well, meanwhile, Jean's doing her best to fight back in Emma's body, but she's not going to last too long against all these opponents. Fortunately, the X-Men pick this moment to show up. Yeah, in Fitzroy's words, the X-Men blast through the bad guys as if they were amateurs. Uh, the bad guys, not the X-Men. And they keep going until Sentinels show up, and basically the fight keeps ex escalating and the X-Men just keep winning. So they take out the Sentinels easily, Forge heads back to the plane with, with Jean in Emma's body, Fitzroy eats the Hellions to absorb all of their life energy and open a massive portal so all of his glam rock friends can come through. And then they get taken out really easily, too. But let's focus for a moment on the fact that all of the Hellions, which there are like 16 of them here for some reason, I don't know why, but all of the Hellions, these recurring characters who we grew to hate and love and respect and disdain over the course of New Mutants, they all just got taken out just to show that the new bad guy was a badass. This wouldn't be as bad if a new bad guy weren't Trevor fucking Fitzroy. So I said fuck you, Trevor, before. So let me say again. Fuck the fuck out of you, Trev fucking Ver. Yeah, man. At least Warlock got taken out by Cameron Hodge. I know, right? Although I also feel compelled to note that um, what Fitzroy's doing right here, absorbing souls to transport people, he's kind of like a soul jammer from Spelljammer. You know, the spaceships that would suck out people's souls to go through space? Yeah, so there you go. We've, we've been heavy on the very specific gaming references this episode. As well we should be. But just as Fitzroy is promising more surprises, the portal explodes, and three righteous motherfuckers come on through. These are Bishop, Randall, and Malcolm from the cover of the issue, and I love everything about them. Fuck yeah, these guys. And that takes us to Uncanny X-Men 283, Bishop's Crossing. I love the cover, because it really looks like Storm is pointing and laughing at Bishop. I feel like there should have been a dialogue bubble there, but we do get some amazing dialogue in the captions that open the issue. Place the Arctic lair of Trevor Fitzroy, renegade mutant and would-be leader of the Hellfire Club. Time, the present, barely a heartbeat since the end of last issue. Situation, chaos unleashed. I'm pretty sure Chaos Unleashed is the first album of like half the metal bands out there. Also of... Probably, like, at least three different crossover events. Probably true. But the three future cops from the end of last issue, they beat the hell out of Fitzroy and his multicolored goons. And, okay, so these dudes, so they're all wearing these blue and yellow futuristic cop uniforms, complete with big red bandanas around their necks and those M tattoos over their right eyes. And they have badges that say, Xavier School Enforcers. Man, the hall monitors of the future have gotten intense. I know, right? They later will be called the Xavier Security Enforcers, but it is hilariously wonderful that they're now the Xavier School Enforcers. Although, I gotta say, the hall monitor thing actually kind of fits for the XSE. I really like the idea of them threatening people with their absurdly large 90s guns for things like splashing at the drinking fountain or running in the hallways. Right? Okay, so these dudes, these dudes, dear listeners, we have Randall, who has a black ponytail mullet and uses heavy weapons. We have Malcolm, sporting a ginger mullet, triple wrist lasers, and lots of random but highly technological armor. And we have Lucas Bishop, with a waist-length mega mullet and a goatee. He is the leader, mainly due to having the best mullet. I accept this theory. 
I'm pretty sure it's just true. So this was one of my favorite issues when I was a kid. I loved Malcolm and Randall for some reason. I don't know why. They're only around like very briefly and then they get off, but they were just so cool. No, I get that because they're cool and they've got connections to the story, but they're just background enough that you can pretty much fill in the details as you see fit. Like you can play these dudes on the playground and not have to worry about too much canon. They're, they're like the future mutant equivalent of that little droid everyone in our generation had an action figure of, even though it was only like, in 15 seconds of A New Hope. Oh, yeah, that one. Um, yeah. Also, Jay, do you remember that role-playing game we ran in college, The City? Yeah. Uh, you remember the character Randall? I totally named him after this Randall. You fucking nerd. <laughs> right? So, they beat all the bad dudes, and they're about to push them back through the portal to the future where they can be future-imprisoned. However, as soon as they try to push one of the glam criminals through the portal, he dies horribly, and Fitzroy reveals with appropriate villainous laughter that the portals are one way, which means not only can the future cops not send their prisoners back through, but they themselves are stuck in the present. And Bishop, oh man, Bishop's lines are every bit as dramatic as you'd kind of hope they would be. Fitzroy, you bloody fool. You can't do this. This isn't what happened. And what I must do now to correct your insanity, the blood I must spill, is all on your head. So things kind of take a carry turn at this point. <laughs> nice. Thank you. But the XSC tries to execute all the bad guys, who then pull this I am Spartacus trick and all holographically turn into Fitzroy so they don't know which one is really Fitzroy, whatever. So Storm, who preserves all life except when she doesn't, orders the X-Men to stop the future cops from acting like present cops. Ooh, burn. Now, the X-Men learn two things during this fight. The first is that they conclude that all of these guys are from a timeline that is somehow related to days of future past. Because, I don't know, the hairstyles, I assume, but also the, the sense that they're maybe from a, a bad place where people like Fitzroy are around. And yeah, I don't know, this is iffy. They don't come to this conclusion for any particularly good reason. These guys are actually from Earth 1191, as I mentioned. And again, this is sort of the naming convention where the Earth numbers, the universe designations are, you know, the month and year where they first show up in the comics. So in this case, November of 1991. Now, Earth 1911 is post-Earth 811. It's technically at least starts out as the same timeline as Days of Future Past, but it's going to branch off in the far future. Um, in 1191, mutants and humans teamed up to take down Sentinels. And Bishop and his buddies are basically the cops of this future. Right, because humans and mutants are still not on great terms. The mutants all still have the M brand over their eyes from during the concentration camp days, and they police their own. That's why the XSE exists. We also learn that Bishop's power is to absorb energy from other people's powers and direct it back at them. In this issue, he actually mimics the powers he absorbs. Later on, he'll just shoot blasts. So one of the villains whose name is, I shit you not, I-Beam, hits Bishop with an I-Beam, and then Bishop fires his own I-Beam. I just said I-Beam three times quickly enough that it doesn't even sound like words anymore. And one of the times, it was someone's name. It was. So, Shinobi's robot dudes very quietly capture Fitzroy and take him away while Bishop is in shock at meeting the X-Men, which is one of the coolest things about Bishop, I think. Okay, Bishop has the world's biggest time crush on the X-Men ever, and it's really cute. He's, he's not even like the kid meeting his favorite author. He's like the kid meeting his favorite superheroes without knowing that they're not real. It's amazing. I want to take Bishop to theme parks. But I really like it because Bishop is, you know, he, he idolizes the X-Men. He's heard of these legendary people who founded Xavier's dream. But then when he actually meets him, he's disappointed because A, their timeline has diverged from his and so he's confused. And B, they're just normal, flawed, at times very flawed people. And I think that's one of the things that makes Bishop so compelling is that conflict. First of all, what he is specifically disappointed and upset by here is that Angel's appearance is not the canon version that he's used to. Second, Bishop is a really interesting analog for hardcore X-Men fans. Yeah. I don't know if he was deliberately set up as that, but it he really feels like that to me, especially in this early era when he comes to the X-Men expecting a very specific thing that he's idolized that's been filtered through his own preferences, priorities, and perceptions, and also his own social situation and the world that he's grown up in, and then is incredibly and often violently and abusively upset when they fail to perfectly match that. We've talked before about how the X-Men tend to be a team that people care a lot about and kind of invest deeply in, and that can manifest in some really fucked up ways. 
and some really inappropriate and awful and unacceptable ways. Like X-Men fans, you're great. We know you're great. At least if you're listening to this, you're great because we get to actually interact with you. But like X-Men fans simultaneously have a reputation for being one of the most engaged and invested fan bases and also one of the most, I mean, I guess one is one of the most aggressive. Yeah, I would totally agree. So yeah, Bishop is a fairly good object lesson for how not to engage with media you're deeply invested in and your heroes. Although he is a great example of how to dress. Now, one interesting thing here during the fight, when Storm orders the team to concentrate on Bishop as their prime target because he's the most dangerous, Iceman is kind of a dick about it, even if he's mostly talking under his breath. You got it, boss lady. Though somehow I think Cyclops would have twigged to that long ago. Now, this isn't without precedent. Iceman was also kind of a dick to the new members of the team back in Giant Size X-Men number one. Yeah, this is going to come up during Austin's run, too. It may at other places, but those are the points where I specifically remember it. And what it comes down to, I think, kind of, is that Iceman is really insecure and his position as one of the real X-Men and therefore other people's as not is kind of part of how he defines himself during a lot of the eras when the team gets larger. Agreed. So the fight continues and Storm kicks everybody's ass, but she's awesome. But meanwhile, Xavier and Forge are examining Jean and Emma's bodies and confirm, yep, Jean's mind is in Emma's body. Xavier also briefly, and in ways that are never going to come up again, retcons the origins of Jean's telepathy. But again, this is sort of a one-off and pretty clearly an error rather than a significant change. So we'll just gloss that for now. Unless it was John Byrne trying to return things to his status quo from back in the day. Who knows? But it works. Jean's back in her body. Hooray! It's hinted during this that there might have been interference from another telepath, but that's one of many plot threads that's just sort of going to get dropped and left to unravel on its own. It's never actually going to be followed through on. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Shinobi Shaw taunts the now-captured Trevor Fitzroy. So is this why you were calling them a fellowship? Because Shinobi's got his ring back and his finger's been reattached by a sentinel, weirdly, and he actually calls the ring precious. I know, right? But I want to focus for just a moment on a sentinel. And remember, these are Shinobi Shaw's own sentinels who are like the old big kind reattaching his finger. That is some very precise work, some very caring work from this physician, from Dr. Sentinel. See, I told you sentinels could do detail work. I told you that this was going to come up, this issue. Right? But I mean, sentinels, I don't know, I guess they have a good like bedside manner, maybe... Mr. Shaw, don't be shy about taking that hydrocodone. It's not a sign of weakness. And please don't forget to finish your course of antibiotics. Don't forget to call if you have any questions. Like, with the white coat and the little head mirror thing? I love this concept. No, I, I think the real moral here is don't bring a knife to a sentinel fight. That's, that's really good advice. Listeners, you can use that advice possibly once in your life also. Unless the knife is Wolverine. Yeah, you can bring him. So Fitzroy, the imprisoned, demands that the Games Master be called to arbitrate this conflict, the never-before-seen Games Master. But apparently, Shinobi already talked to the Games Master, and the Games Master found in favor of Shinobi. So Shinobi blows up Trevor Fitzroy's base. You know, the one with, like, all the main characters in it. It's okay. They'll be fine. They're the protagonists. And in fact, Storm creates a pressure dome using her powers to protect the X-Men. The XSE, on the other hand, who are still convinced that these X-Men are imposters, they can't possibly be the real ones, they must just be more of Fitzroy's goons, they shoot down the ceiling to cover their own escape from these folks. Meanwhile, while the upstarts don't get to see the Game Master, we do. He is a bald dude wearing a green jumpsuit and a lot of random yellow machine parts. And he is apparently in cahoots with... Celine. A, I wonder if he borrowed those yellow machine parts from Malcolm. And B, fucking Celine. Oh, it turns out she's the one manipulating the whole upstart game and is providing its fabled prize. And this will never really make full sense, which makes it even more pointless that one of my least favorite villains is showing up in a story with one of my other least favorite villains. Welp, that's the end of that arc. Yeah, well, but you know what? Bishop is now in Earth-616 in the main Marvel Universe, and he is awesome, and we're going to see lots more of him, and he's going to join the X-Men and often be written very badly, but still be a great concept, and that makes it all worth it. Lucas Bishop, I love you, never leave, and certainly never turn super evil and chase a baby into the future trying to kill her. That would, that would be unfortunate. You know, I actually kind of like that. I thought it was pretty consistent as a note of characterization, but... 
it does help to put this arc in context to think of it as the price we pay for Lucas Bishop. Like, I can deal with it then. Okay, that's entirely fair. What's also fair is us answering your questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Hi guys, I was interested in your answers to listener questions about which X characters you'd like to see represented as trans. That was a few episodes ago, and we will link to that in this episode's visual companion. Notably because all your examples were retconning existing characters to say that the gender they presently identify as is trans, i.e. Logan is a trans man and always has been. You didn't mention any characters you'd like to see go through transition, which would be my preference if we're going to change older characters to be trans. Any ideas? Kitty or Rachel, maybe? Honestly, anyone for whom it was well-written. I think that that's an arc that it's entirely reasonable to introduce later in a character's life. Obviously, I have some personal biases on this front, but I also think that, that socially there's plenty of context and history for that. That said, I kind of want to talk a little bit about terminology here, because while I get what you're going for and what you're talking about, um, there are some ways that you might want to discuss this stuff when you do that are going to be a little clearer and also more in the, the current, um, current accepted lexicon for discussing trans issues. So, for example, you know, if a character is trans, they've kind of always been trans. And what, what you're describing as, as their trans identity or their transgender or just is, is their gender. You know, it's, you, you don't say that someone was born female, you say they were assigned female because, again, that's, that's it's about assigned gender, gender, not identified gender. Does that make sense? So even if it's not a retcon, the changes, the decision to have a character be transgender or queer or whatever, um, ec still echo retroactively. So for instance, Iceman wasn't always deliberately written as gay, but at this point, the character always was gay. Um Anyway, going back and to answer your question, maybe it's just because he's he's at the top of my mind because of these issues, but um, Bishop, I think, would be a really interesting character to take in that direction. Huh, yeah, that could be kind of fascinating. I mean, I think in terms of a character who has had a fairly, I'm not going to say typical because there is no single trans experience, but the arc of whose life has reflected the experiences of a lot of trans women just in terms of the directions he's taken and the ways that he's explicitly kind of overshot into performed masculinity and the fact that he has a career in, in law enforcement, in the military, and also that he's lived in a context that has left him with very little space to explore and question identity, that there's, there's not really a framework in which he's had things beyond survival and also externally set rules to consider in terms of his options or in terms of the identities available to him. You know, I don't think I have any follow-ups myself, but that was a really fascinating answer. Thanks. And an another anonymous lis listener asks on Tumblr, are either or both of you Kang the Conqueror? And if so, when will your labyrinthine machinations come to light? I can't speak for Miles, but I, as, as far as I know, I am not Kang the Conqueror. That said, we know from canon, um, and especially from Young Avengers, that that knowing that you're not Kang the Conqueror does not necessarily mean that you're not Kang the Conqueror. So it's obviously an option to which I am open. I mean, of course I'm not Kang the Conqueror. Come on. I uh, am, however, Nathaniel Richards, Victor Timely, Pharaoh Ramatut, the Blue Man, the Blue Totem, the King of Kings, the Master of Men, the Lord of the Seven Sons, Victor Timely Jr., Victor Timely III, and the Conqueror of the Universe and the Scarlet Centurion and God. I see what you did there. Right? So, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. Let's turn it over, even though Claremont's gone, to the angry Claremontian narrator. The X-Men were everything to you, Avi Brand. Your past and your future. Your dreams. Your ambitions. Your hopes. You poured through history books for any mention of Michael Tomasulo and absorbed every drop of anecdota and apocrypha. But no amount of research could have prepared you for the 1990s. And now I believe I am turning over the mic to uh, sexy Shinobi Shaw. Welcome, friends, to my sexy den of sexual sex. As you can see, we have all the types of people a person would want to have sex with. Vinton Bain, 
check out our sweet rotating circular sex bed where I have done sex with many partners. Kim Fukawa, do you see my mirrored ceiling? It lets you see all of the sex combo moves that are happening and all of the sexy champagne flutes and shag carpeting. Vinton and Kim, uh, step past my cosmopolitan sexual statues and we shall discuss your entry to the newer, sexier Hellfire Club. And also sex. This very sexy episode of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men was recorded in the sexy Forest Hills, New York, and the even sexier Portland, Oregon, and produced by the presumably very sexy Matt Hunter. New sexy episodes come out every sexy Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com.sexy. Except for that last part. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of sexy extra sex content, including visual companions for every episode, and probably sex. Our show is 100% sexy listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, stay ad-free, and stay sexy, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, polish your abs, flex your guns, and find some convenient foliage to hide your feet. Because... It's X-Force time. (laughs) 